You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Philippians chapter 1 is where we are. If you have an ESV Bible, that'll be on page 980. And uh, we're going to read just two verses today as we kick off this letter together. Philippians chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask that we just pray one more time together to center our hearts on the Lord. I ask that you pray for me as I pray for you. Father, as usual, nobody got up this morning uh, just to mark some religious duty off their list or to hear uh, from a man. Uh, We're here because we need our lives transformed. We're here because we need something beyond ourselves. I'm so grateful today that the best news on the planet is the news that I get to share today. And I pray that you'll take it from just being true news to good news to each person who is here. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot this morning and try to get some feedback, okay? What is your favorite TV show of all time? Let me hear from some of you. I know we're on the spot. Favorite TV show of all time? Friends. What did you say? Friends? Fresh Prince? Yeah. Come on. Andy Griffith, huh? What did you say? Is that a real show? Mama's family. What channel does that come on? It that, may, I, I believe that. It doesn't come on anymore. Uh, anything else? Green Acres. Okay. All right. Green Acres is on the board. Okay. Anything else? Now's your time to speak because you got to be quiet the rest of the sermon. What's that? Okay. Excellent. I don't know what you said, but I bet it is excellent. <laughs> I don't think you can say that in church. So, all right. Good. Okay. Hey, well, here's the deal. I've had some time to think about that uh, this past week. And uh, I want to share with you my favorite show, starting, though, with number five. Okay? So coming at number five, my favorite show of all time, I'm going to go with Stranger Things. I know that that is a fairly new show, but my wife and I have seen it uh, a couple times. Um, Actually, a new season comes out on Halloween this year, if you have Netflix. So number five, Stranger Things. Number four, uh, Breck said it, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Like, that theme song has been in my mind all week long, and I'm this close to making us all sing it together, but I'm sure some of you... (laughs) Some of you probably brought a guest, and I want them to believe we are a Christian church, and so, because we are. Uh, number uh, three for me, I'm going with Boy Meets World. Any Boy Meets World fans in here? Yep, Topanga was my first love before Megan came along. Number two, I can't believe nobody said this, I'm going with Saved by the Bell, right? Come on now. What boy in the 90s did not want to be Zach Norris, right? With those high tops, that hair, and that huge cell phone, right, that he had. And then number one for me, I've not seen every episode, but, but the episodes I have seen, I love. I'm going with The Office at number one, okay? And the reason I'm going with The Office at number one is because of this man in the front, Michael Scott. And if you've never seen The Office, let me tell you about Michael Scott real quick. Okay, Michael Scott 
is the most ignorant and yet arrogant boss you could ever have. He's the boss of this uh, basically dying paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And his employees basically hate their job. They just can't find a job anywhere else. And they hate him as the boss because his whole goal as their boss is not really like to help the company grow and to reach the goals that the, you know, the big CEOs want him to reach. But his primary goal is because he's such a lonely man is just to get his employees to like him. So every day when he shows up to work, rather than helping the employees do their job, he just tries to invent new ways to be like the funnest, coolest boss the world has ever seen, okay? And there's this one episode where he runs into uh, his HR guy, Toby, who is constantly like thwarting every attempt he has to try to have fun. And, and, and Michael Scott has enough of it. And so in this scene, he goes to Toby, and I've got a 20-second clip for you if we can throw it on the screen. Here's what he says to Toby. Ready? Why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. <laughs> I hate so much about the way you are. Why are you the way that you are? Michael Scott hates Toby. And if you keep watching the show, the reason he hates Toby is because he honestly believes that Toby's main purpose is to keep him from having fun, from being, right, a fun, exciting boss. And the reason I show that clip is because, here's the deal, I really believe, as tragic as it is, there are many people in the religious South, maybe even some of you here today, who you view Jesus the way Michael Scott views Toby. Whenever you look at Jesus and you think about the rules and the regulations and the do's and the don'ts, rather than thinking about someone who is this endless source of life and pleasure, you think of this celestial killjoy who wants nothing more than to rob you of the life and the satisfaction that you were created to experience. And the reason this is so tragic, guys, is because nothing can be further from the truth. In fact, we read it earlier on the screen in Acts chapter 8, verse 8. The Bible says that whenever the real Jesus, the real resurrected King Jesus comes to town, there is a joy that comes with him that is richer, deeper, fuller than any other temporary joy that this world can offer us today. I don't want to try to deceive you today. The truth is this. If you want to have a little fun in this world and just a little bit of pleasure, you really don't need Jesus for that. You don't. Uh, if you want to sprinkle a little bit of happiness in your life through different seasons, you do not need to become a Christian today. And as parents, let me just say this. We need to stop pretending like that isn't true. First 20 years of my life, I lived in complete opposition to Christ, and I still had some pretty good times here and there. The truth is today, you can have sex outside of marriage, and it be a little fun. You can get drunk, you can get high, and feel giddy at times. Right? You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want. You can look at porn. You can spend money however you want to spend it. And still, during certain seasons, experience some pleasure in this life. When you stop acting like that's not true. But here's the reality. If you want to experience this morning a real joy, an unshakable joy, if you want to experience a joy that will stand the test of time no matter what comes your way, through things like the death of a child, the loss of a job, 
through a bad diagnosis, if you want a joy that isn't just here today and gone tomorrow because it's tethered to the circumstances of life, then you need Jesus for that type of life. And because Paul knows that is true, he writes this letter to the church of Philippi. And over the next 10 weeks, we're going to dive into this letter together and we're going to discover how Jesus Christ really does bring true and lasting joy to every single part of our life. But before we can dive into this letter, we need to understand the background to the letter. And so I'm going to ask that you, if you will, flip with me to Acts chapter 16. We'll come back and we'll end with Philippians chapter 1, but go with me to Acts 16. And I want you to understand the backstory to the letter that we're going to spend so much time in. And as you're turning to Acts 16, what you need to know is Paul wrote the letter of Philippians. And Paul is formerly the artist known as Saul. And whenever he was Saul, he was a terrorist. He hated Christ, and therefore he hated Christians. And he wanted nothing more than to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. He didn't want the name of Jesus ever mentioned again. And so when you read about the life of Saul, if you want to know like what he was up to, basically he just like walked around looking for, uh, looking for Christians that he can throw in prison. He was constantly trying to persecute Christians to shut them down. And so there's even a scene where, where Stephen, uh, the first martyr in Christian history, is preaching the gospel. Paul pulls off his jacket and holds it and says, throw the stones and kill this man. And so they kill Stephen for preaching the gospel while Paul sits there and approves the whole thing. So this man, Saul, is a pretty wicked dude. But eventually Saul is on the road to Damascus. He meets the real resurrected King Jesus and his life changes in a moment. He goes from being a terrorist to being a missionary. He goes from wanting to shut up anybody from talking about Jesus and spending his life to talking about Jesus. And here we are in Acts 16, and Jesus is now with his posse. He's with Silas. He's with Luke. He's with his protege, Timothy. And they are on the ultimate road trip, sharing the good news of Jesus wherever it has not been shared. And we come to verse 6, and here's what we read. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been, look at this, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Isn't that a weird verse? So they want to go speak the gospel in Asia, but the Holy Spirit says no. And I don't know what that looked like. I don't know if it was a no through a shut door. I don't know if it was like an audible no. But the point is, the Holy Spirit said no, and Paul heard the no. And verse 7, it says, then when they had come up to Messiah... They attempted to go down to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Messiah, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. If you uh, can, if you're a visual person, I don't know if we have a map we can put on the screen, uh, Ryan, of this little region. Uh, you really can't see it, but basically, I mean, here's an outline of Paul's uh, journey. Originally, he thought that he was supposed to, right, go to uh, Phrygia, and then he thought he was supposed to go to Messiah, and then he thought he was supposed to go to Bithynia to preach the gospel, and everywhere he turned, and he was convinced he needed to go, the Holy Spirit said no, to where eventually he ended up in a place called Macedonia. And as I thought about that this past week, I thought how much hope that brings me. Because like Paul, there has been times in my life where I have been absolutely convinced God wants me to do this thing. Only to discover after making that move, there was a shut door. 
that it did not turn out the way that I thought that things should be? Am I alone here? Like, is there anybody else in here where there's been times in your life where you're like, man, I just know God's called me, my family to do this or called me to do it. But then upon making that decision, something happened that seemed like maybe the opposite was true, that you maybe somehow missed a call. Maybe for some of you today, it was a job that you took. Man, I know God wants me to take this job. And then you get into it, and it's nothing like you thought it would be. Or, man, I know God's called me to marry this girl, to marry this guy, but then you get there, and they're completely different than you thought they were. Or, I know, man, I know that God has called me to have children, and then you try, and you try, and you try, but there's no kids. Maybe you're a teenager, and you're like, man, I, 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 I just knew that God called me to stand up for my faith, to share my faith, or to share the gospel, and I was completely rejected and made fun of for doing so. I mean, has anybody else ever been there today? Some of you have heard this story, but, but, but five years ago, um, we were first starting this church. I was speaking at a medical clinic. There was a, a ministry in town that provided free medical care for people in the city that couldn't afford it, and they asked me to come and speak at it. And I was sharing, and I was about to walk out. I had done my thing, and I saw this girl sitting on the floor, and I felt the Holy Spirit tug me to go and talk to her. But I kept walking, and as I'm walking out the door, I felt the Holy Spirit said to me, keep walking and see what I'm going to do to you. So I was like, okay. So I turned around. And I sat down by this girl, and I get talking to her, and come to find out she was a cutter, she was a meth addict, and she had just lost her daughter because of her addiction. And my heart just broke for her. And as she's talking, I get this vision. This doesn't happen very often, and I know it seems weird to some of you, but like, I get like this vision in my mind of this family sitting in my home around our dinner table, eating a meal with us and being fully restored. And I felt like, man, this is going to be this girl. And so after she talks, I give her my number and I say, look, my wife and I would love to minister to you any way that we can to help you. I know you're in addiction, but listen, if you, if you want out of this, don't use the excuse if there's no way out because we'll help you. And so we gave her the number, didn't hear from her for two months, but then the Greene County Jail calls me and says, hey, this woman has been placed in jail and she's requested that you come see her and that you bring a Bible with you. And so I'm like, man, this is incredible. Like this is part of the vision, right? And so it's like I go into the jail and for about, I guess, six or seven weeks, I spend time going through the gospel with her. She says, hey, I want to give my life to Jesus. And so I'm pumped. I go back to our missional community. Y'all remember this? That we're in the MC. And I was like, hey, I'm convinced by God that he wants us to bail this woman out. We all need to put our money in. We need to get her clothes. And we need to get her into the Agape house uh, because that's a, a you know, Christian-based drug rehab. And she wants, you know, it's going to be awesome, right? And so we do all of that. We go all in, don't we? And we get her in, and, and we put our names on the line. I go to the court system and stand before the judge. and We do all of this stuff, and we get her in. And then two weeks later, uh, later Sonny Curtis, who oversees the Agape House, calls me and says, uh, I got bad news. Diane has ran away. She's gone. I said, well, what does that mean? She said, well, she's going to go back to prison for a while. And I'll be honest, for like a week, I was in a funk. Where my wife just came and like, prayed over me one day. because I was just I was, Honestly, I was mad at God. I was like, where are you? I was convinced 100% this is what you called us to do, and now I look like a fool. And what's incredible about that is when this woman went into the Agape house, there at the Agape house was this girl by the name of Brooke Smith who had just went in. And Brooke heard the story of how our church had loved on Diane and said, man, that's the church I want to be a part of someday. She contacts her husband, B.J. Smith, who's in a prison in Mississippi, and says, 
we got to be a part of a church like this. If you're serious about following Jesus, when you get out of prison and I get out of the agape house, we're going to come back here. We're going to try to restart everything, get our family, get our kids back, and this is where we're going to serve. And as you know today, Brooke and BJ are leading the missional community to many people, right? They, they've had a huge impact, not just here, but beyond as their stories kind of circulated throughout the country. And what's incredible is about two weeks after they got here, my wife and I were sitting at our dinner table with Brooke and BJ and their kids, and I was about to pray, and I said, wait a minute, that's the family. The whole time. It's been them. And I share that story just to say this. You never know what's on the other side of the prompting of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit prompts you to go and do something, it's always, just about always, it takes longer, it's harder, and it's more different than you can ever imagine it is. But if you will stay committed, if you will be faithful, if you will stay sensitive to the Spirit like Paul and his group is here, you will discover something better and more beautiful than you could ever come up with in your own mind. We find that as we continue our story in verse 11, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. By the way, if you don't ever know how to pronounce words in Scripture, just say it with confidence, and people usually think you know what you're saying. And so, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city for the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, uh, we reminded, or we remained in this city some days. And then on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. Basically, what's happening here, Paul had this strategy. Every time uh, they wanted to preach the gospel somewhere, they would go to a major city because they felt like the cities actually impact culture around, so they would try to change the culture in the city so it would change culture around them. And they would look for a local synagogue, a place where Jewish people worship the God of the Bible so they could have this common interest and then take them towards Jesus and show them how Jesus is Lord of life. The problem is they get to this city and there's not even 10 Jews. All you need is 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. There's not even 10 Jewish men in the city. So not only is there not a Christian presence, there's not even a strong presence of people who worship the God of the Bible. And so what they do is they end up kind of rolling up on this women's Bible study. And here's what happens in verse 14. One who heard of us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. In other words, what we know about Lydia is she is from an Asian descent, and she is basically the CEO of her own fashion empire. This is an incredibly wealthy woman. Today, she'd probably live in London or New York or L.A., and she's sitting here having her Bethmore Bible study with her girls, and Paul and them roll up on her, and he finds out they're worshipers of God. And so like they, they worship the God of the Old Testament. But they don't know anything about Jesus. So he preaches the gospel to them. And look what happens next. Verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And then after this, she was baptized. And her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And then she prevailed Upon us. Verse 14 The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. The truth is today, and you need to hear this when it comes to the mission of God, listen real carefully. All of us in here are missionaries. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary. And when it comes to the mission of God, listen, it is your job to preach the gospel, it's God's job to change people's hearts. All we have to do. All we have to do is open up our mouths and do the best we can to share the truth from God's word. And it is God's job, we see here, to open the hearts of people and begin to transform them from the inside out. You know what that means? That means when it comes to the mission of God, the pressure is off. 
When it comes to sharing the faith with your employees or, or people in your workplace or in your neighborhood, you don't have to be super articulate. You don't have to have all the answers to their questions. You don't have to be able to like give these illustrations and break it all down. All you need to do is open your mouth and trust God with the results. That's what we see happen right here in Acts 16. Lydia gives her life to Christ. And then as we keep going, verse 16, it says, As we were going to the place of prayer, we were then met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. And Paul, Paul having become greatly annoyed, turned to her and said, in the, uh, said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This slave girl who is possessed by a demon stands in complete contrast to the first convert we see in Philippi. Lydia, the first convert, is Asian. This girl is Greek. Lydia is an intellect who is in control of her life. This little girl is impoverished, enslaved, and exploited. Lydia is a seeker. This girl is literally demon-possessed. Lydia is popular. This girl is an outcast. Lydia is delightful. This girl is disruptive. And in her disruptiveness, Paul gets annoyed. Literally, he's like, just like, okay, enough's enough. Where are you? And then he's just like, in the name of Jesus, cast a demon out of her. And they all of a sudden have their second convert, and she begins to join them in the journey. It's a really bizarre and yet incredible story, isn't it? If you go on to verse 19, it says, Her owners then saw that their hope for gain was over. The, the evil spirit that was making all the money is gone. So what do they do? They seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, look at this. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. May that be said of Fellowship Paragold. May that be said of you and me, that we are living in such a way that literally we're changing the entire culture of the city for the good of the city and for the glory of God. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. The crowd then joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received his order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Which, by the way, is a torture device that would contort your body in all sorts of ways. It would cause you just to cramp up in excruciating pain. And it's while here, in verse 25, we see something that's absolutely astounding to me. This is about midnight, Paul and Silas, while in prison, while being tortured, begin to pray and sing hymns to God. Because that's just what you do whenever you're being tortured in prison, right? I mean, do you have an image of this? They have been beaten to a pulp. Everything seems to be falling apart. And they're like, Lord, I lift your name on high. <laughs> right? In these chains I sing your praises. Right? I mean, that's literally what's happening. It, it just doesn't matter what you do to these men. No matter what situation they find themselves in, they're always rejoicing. Like he, Paul had to be the most frustrating human being on the planet. To an enemy of the gospel. Because you can't win with this guy. As we're going to read later in Philippians. If you go up to Paul and you say. Hey we're going to kill you for preaching the gospel. He'll say. Hey man to die is gain. Because then I can be with Jesus. 
You're like, okay, all right. Well, we'll let you live. You know, say, okay, awesome, man, to live is, I mean, that, that's, that's awesome to live as Christ. I'll just keep talking about Jesus. I'll get to, I'll get to win more people to Christ. Like, okay, well, we're going to torture you. And he says, that's okay. I've learned to be content in all situations because I know even my suffering makes me more like Jesus. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God in prison. And the prisoners were listening to them, verse 26. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors, the prison doors were open, he threw, uh, he threw his sword, or drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So this man, like many people today, finds his identity in his work. And he believes he's valued by what he does. And because he's not doing a very good job at work, he wants to kill himself. And in verse 28, Paul cries out, well, don't harm yourself. For we're all here. And the jailer called for the lights and rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Imagine living a life like that. Where people literally look at you. By how you live and say, what must I do to be saved? I don't know what's up with you, but something's different about you, and I want what you have. What must I do to be saved? Look at his answer. He doesn't say, well, try harder to be better, young man. Start with obeying orders and keeping prisoners where you're supposed to keep them. Right? Make sure you read your Bible daily. He, say, he could have said whatever he wanted to say. Softball. What must I do to be saved? Verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. That seems too easy, too simple, doesn't it? Just believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe he is who he says he is. He's done everything he says he's done. You will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word. They shared the gospel with him to all who were in his house. Verse 33, and they took the same hour that night, and they washed their wounds And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. And then he brought them out into his house and set food before them. And look at this. And the household was filled with joy because they believed in God. First convert in Philippi, a wealthy Asian business owner. Second convert in Philippi, a poor slave girl from Greece. Third convert, a blue-collar ex-Philippian soldier who's manning jail cells who probably honestly just wants to do his work, go home and get him a beer and watch a game. Just a good old boy, man. And what this reminds us of is whether you're young or you're old, you're rich or you're poor, you're black or you're white, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've been through, Jesus will meet you where you are. And he will fill your heart, I'm telling you guys, he will fill your heart with a joy that is found nowhere else. And I get it. Some of you are like, yeah, that's preacher talk. Trying to just get everybody riled up. Trying to get some emotions going. I get it. Yeah, preacher. Good stuff, man. This isn't just a story that we read in Scripture. I mean, this is so many of your stories today. I mean, I just sent a text to a few people in our church this past week that I know have come to know Jesus within the last three or four years. And I just asked them, hey, hey, what was your experience whenever you surrendered everything over to Jesus? And here are some of the responses I got. Andy Runyon, ex-college you know, athlete, I found a peace and no longer feeling like I have to be in control of every aspect of my life. Zach Wilson, another college athlete, man's man, much like myself, you know. He says, for the first time ever, 
I was able to be the man that God created me to be while having the assurance of knowing that even when I mess up, God still loves me. His wife, Janelle, says, I realize that unlike all the other men I'd been looking to, that only Jesus could heal my wounds. B.J. Smith said, I found mercy when all the world had to offer was shame and condemnation. When I surrendered, I found myself for the first time. That's coming from a guy who, when he met Jesus, was a leader of one of the largest gangs and largest prison in the South. Incredible. Incredible. His wife, Brooke, I discovered that Jesus fulfills every desire of my heart. And even when times are hard, there is still a peace and a joy and a freedom. Savannah Parent, whenever I surrendered my life to Christ, my soul felt its immeasurable worth for the very first time. Evan Rucker, I experienced a raw, true acceptance. All of my flaws, all of my mistakes, all the lies in my head that had told me I wasn't good enough, he shattered them all with his love for my brokenness. I could keep sharing, man, just story after story, but here is the point. Whether you are a rich person who's in here today and you're religiously lost, or you're a poor person who is an outcast and in bondage to sin, or just a good old boy or a good old gal who doesn't feel like you need anybody or anything, Jesus will meet you where you are today. And he'll forgive you of your sins. And he'll free you from the things that's keeping you from experiencing the life that he's created you to experience. And he will fill you with the joy that you have been looking for but cannot find in this world. That's what happens right here in Acts 16. And it is through this messy, small group of people the church of Philippi is born. Paul's core group is a female business tycoon a demon-possessed slave girl, and a suicidal parole officer. God hits straight shots with crooked sticks, right? If you flip back over to Philippians chapter 1, 10 years later, after this happens, that's the backstory. 10 years later, Paul gets thrown in prison again for preaching the gospel. Dude just will not shut up and learn his lesson. And while he is in prison... Rather than complaining, he writes a letter to the church of Philippi to encourage them because they're going through an incredible amount of persecution and suffering, and he wants to show them how the real Jesus can bring real joy in all of life. And he starts his whole letter, if you look again in verse 1, he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. In a letter where you're talking about joy, Paul says, I've got to start with Christ, because if you don't get Christ, you don't get joy. And how does, why does Jesus bring joy? Well, it says in Acts 13, 38, Paul says that it's through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. You need to be forgiven today? You ready to get rid of all the guilt and shame you're experiencing? You want to be freed? Anybody need to be freed from something in here? Anxiety? Certain sins have been plaguing you forever, and you're like, I cannot get over this. The real Jesus brings forgiveness and freedom, and that's where the joy comes from. And how does he do this? Because in Mark 10, 45, Jesus said, I did not come to this world to be served. I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom. That should blow our minds, by the way. The creator of the universe, the king of the world, says, I come, I descend into this world, and I didn't come here to be served by you. I came to serve you. I came to listen to you. I came to love you. I came to care for you. I came to give my life as a ransom for you. And so what does Jesus do? He lives a perfect, sinless life that none of us could live. And then he goes to the cross and he dies on our behalf. He pays the penalty for our sins and then he raises from the dead. 
And he sends us his spirit so that we can all now have a personal and powerful relationship with him that is secured for all eternity, not because of your works, but because of the work of Christ on our behalf. That's the gospel. And to make sure that we understand this, Paul says, let me just remind you of your identity. He says, I'm Paul, Timothy, servant of Christ Jesus, and you are all, verse 1, saints in Christ Jesus. You know what a saint is? To be a saint is to be a holy one. He says, you're holy, church. You're you're, you're holy. You're set apart for the kingdom of God. You are a dearly beloved child of God. I want to ask you today, do you believe that you're a saint? Some of you are like, well, not when I think about what I've done this past week. Truth is, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are a saint. You are holy before God. And there's a lot of verses I could read on that. I'll just read a couple of different passages. Romans 6, 3 through 5. Can we put that on the screen? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and the death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Paul says, just as Jesus died, your old self has died. Just as Jesus was raised to newness of life, you have been raised to newness of life. Therefore, you now have a new identity. His identity is your identity. His life is now your life. What is true of him is true of you. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 3. One more we'll look at. If then you have been raised with Christ Jesus, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. For if you have died, and your life then is hidden with Christ in God. You are now hidden in Christ. This is where the pastors get the idea. You've heard us say it before, that when God, look at this, when God looks at you, you know what he sees if you're in Christ? He sees Jesus. You're hidden in Christ. You are wrapped up in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says his perfect record has been imputed to you. Now there's nothing left to prove. There's nothing left to prove. No matter who you are or what you have done. Listen, guys, this is the greatest news. There's no better. I have no ever better news than this. If you are in Christ, where you sit right now, you are absolutely, unconditionally, perfectly, eternally loved by God the Father just as much as he loves his own son, Jesus Christ. No matter what you've done. That's scandalous. That's amazing grace. Maybe for some of you today, you hear that and you're like, well, man, that's just not my experience. Now, I see you getting all fired up. But it's just not my experience, man. I'm sitting here today. I feel lonely. I feel guilty. I feel like God is distant. And if that's where you are, I just want to... Direct your attention back one more time to verse 1. And I want you to notice what else Paul says in here about himself. He says, I, Paul, verse 1, and Timothy, am a servant of Christ Jesus. That is a huge word that you have to get today if you're going to experience joy in Christ. Because the word for servant here literally means to be a slave. Just nobody translates it that way because honestly we just we're afraid of what that might mean if people read that. To be a servant of Christ literally means to be a slave of Christ. And to be a slave means you're owned by him. 
You're the property of him. So what Paul is saying here is, I have been bought with a price. My life is no longer mine. My heart, my mind, my soul, it has all been arrested by Jesus. And therefore, I have gladly given him everything that I have, my time, my talents, my treasures, my dreams, everything. I've signed it over to him. If you want joy in Christ, you have to become a slave to Christ. And if you're like, well, I don't like the idea of being a slave. Listen to me. Everybody in here is a slave to someone or something. Everyone. The question is not, am I going to be a slave, but who or what are you going to be a slave to? Because here's the thing. If you're a slave to anyone other than Jesus, that master will absolutely rob you of joy and eventually drive you into the ground. And I've experienced this, not even before I became a Christian, but even like four weeks ago I was thinking about this. I mean, as a pastor, I still, because I am a broken, sinful man, I tend to want to bow down to other masters even four weeks ago. I'm sitting there and I'm just like, I'm just not having any joy in the ministry. It's just not any fun anymore. And you know why? Because I was bowing down to the master of performance. And more than thinking about what God had called me to do, I was there thinking about how do you all perceive me? Am I being a good enough pastor? Are my sermons as good as the guys that preached in July? Am I loving well enough? Am I leading well enough? And here's the thing. When you have a group this big, there's always somebody who's unhappy with you and thinks you're not doing a great job. I'm bowing down to the master of performance more than Jesus. And it's robbing me of the joy. But fortunately, there's grace and there's forgiveness. And I'm able to find that and repent of that and give that over to Christ. Maybe for some of you today, you're doing the same thing. It's not the master of performance. Maybe for, for you, your master is your kid's. It's your kids that you look to for your ultimate source of joy and life and satisfaction and purpose. And here's the problem. Because you can never be a good enough parent, you're constantly frustrated and burnt out and exhausted and anxious. You hate your kids, honestly. If you think about it. Some of you, I mean, your kids are more of a burden than they are a blessing. And that's on you more than it's on them because you're bowing down to a false idol. You're making something else the master of your life rather than Jesus. For some of you, maybe it's the master of comfort. Man, if it feels good, it looks good, it tastes good, I should go for it. I should never be denied of anything. And because you're not living with any restrictions or boundaries, I mean, you're experiencing the pain of that lifestyle. For some of you, it's the, it's the master of approval. You're spending money you don't have on things you don't need to impress people that in the end honestly really don't even matter. And it makes you miserable. I could keep going point after, I mean, example after example. But just here's my point. The reason I think there's some of you here today who are sitting here joyless, the reason you don't have joy in all of life is because you've not submitted all of life to Christ. You have not become a slave to Jesus. You've not said, you, you sure you said, here's my Sunday. That's why you're here today. But you've not said, here is my everyday. Here is all that I have. I all sign it over to you. Some of you this morning would say, I have Jesus. Here's my question. Does Jesus have you? All of you. Or are you still trying to kind of manage things yourself, trying to be the master of certain areas in your life? We're coming to a close. Please be honest with yourself this morning. Who or what is your master? Is it a boyfriend? Is it a girlfriend? Is it your kids, a spouse, a parent? 
Is it alcohol? Is it pills? Is it pornography? Is it your school? Is it your work? Is it your money? Is it your achievements? Who or what is your master? And here's what I want to ask you. Be honest with yourself. You got, you, please just be honest with yourself as we come to a close this morning. If there's someone or something else other than your master, just let me ask you this. How's that working for you so far? Is that master loving you more than Jesus? Is that master forgiving you more than Jesus? Is that master pursuing you more than Jesus? Is that master promising you more than Jesus has promised you? And is it actually able to then deliver on its promises? Because from my experience... Other masters will promise you the world and then they'll crush you with the weight of it. All of us in here, guys, are slaves to someone or something. And listen, I'm telling you, Jesus is the better master. As someone who followed other masters for the first 20 years of my life, I'm telling you, I do not regret for a second bowing down to Jesus as the Lord of my life. I'm not saying that if you make Jesus your master today that your life is going to be always easy or it's going to always be pleasant, but I can promise you if you will trust him and follow him, you will discover a joy that will stand the test of time. Everybody in here, listen, and we're done. Everybody in here will one day bow down to Jesus as their master. I promise you, you will. And either you'll bow down to him as your savior in this life or you'll bow down to him as your judge in the next life. My hope is that you'll bow down to him in this life and you will experience that if he is your Lord, he will be your savior and he will give you the forgiveness and the freedom and the fulfillment that you're longing for.